Hello and welcome to the Thriving Families podcast. I'm Anna and this is the podcast which aims to provide a safe and non-judgmental space for us to be able to talk about children and young people with additional support needs. Thriving Families and I are based in the Highlands of Scotland and we're hoping to connect people to support us in feeling less isolated and being able to recognise that you're not the only one. So today I'm going to talk about what is an additional support need. It's kind of a term and usually when we have a term we kind of want to define it. So in 2021 I'm thinking like what does that actually mean? So if we think about it in a legal term we do in Scotland have a kind of legal definition by law of what an additional support need is Um, and it's acknowledged that it is when an education authority recognises that a child might have some needs due to um, a learning environment, family circumstances, health and well-being or a disability and that can be both in the long and the short term. Now if I break down that definition it includes a huge amount of things, things that probably relate to most children at some point in their childhood but I don't really think that's what we see or that's what we understand or that's what we recognise. Um, and I would like to think that the last 18 months in particular has really brought it to light that every child at some point in their life and their childhood, both as a young person and even as an adult, we all probably have additional support needs. You know, if I think about the last 18 months and every single child in this country has lived through a pandemic, now who isn't going to need some extra support because of constant changing um, rules, regulations, going to school, not going to school, being able to see family and friends, but maybe just from a distance. You know, it's no wonder that we've seen a huge amount of kids grow in um, with their anxiety issues and are being worried. And so, of course, we as parents, as carers, as professionals, try to meet those needs. Therefore, they are additional support needs. So I think it's really common that we recognise that there are a lot of children and young people at some point who will have what we could class as an additional support need. And we are working and living in a needs-based society, especially here in Scotland. A child doesn't need a diagnosis or a label to be classed as someone who has additional support needs. I suppose traditionally that's what it is seen as. So whether you know there is a young person and we say, oh, they've got dyspraxia. They've got cerebral palsy, they've got autism, they've got ADHD, dyslexia, Down syndrome. Um, they have a vision impairment. They have a physical disability. These seem easier to recognise as the types of things that we class as additional support needs. I suppose connected to all of that, though, is that we're still looking at it in terms of their education. And I think that's one of those things is if you have a young person with additional support needs, it doesn't stop when school closes okay so I think it's really important that when we think about additional support needs essentially we're thinking about an individual child or young person um, who has a big holistic picture of their life you know I think if we look historically at where we've come from I think that's quite important so if we look back to education and where our understanding of additional support needs has come um we look back to essentially the creation of education because that's really in the history books where we become aware of things. However, we have to acknowledge that people with additional support needs have existed for the whole of humanity. We might not have evidence of it because actually um, tolerances have changed 
And I think if we go back to, you know, the Victorian era and the rise of education, you know, essentially, if you were seen as uneducationable, then, you know, we didn't have a very nice attitude to people and lots of people were institutionalized. And, you know, I'm thinking that education in regards to additional support needs hopefully has changed hugely for the better and hugely for people with additional support needs in society because essentially we used to have a world that was very segregated um, and like we have hopefully made progress and changes in segregating people due to race and religion we have to hope that we're also you know moving against that for people with additional support needs and I think we are but like things, racism and prejudice and discrimination still exists. This is always going to be barriers to participation. And it's really apparent for people with additional support needs too. Okay, so if I think about where we are in the 21st century, um, where there is still lots of barriers for people with additional support needs, whether that be a child, a parent or a carer or a professional looking after that young person, we have to, we hope we lived in a world now where we have tried to move away from simply that academic definition of if you can be educated, you're, I don't know, in this bracket of positive development. And if you're not, you're uneducationable. You know, that's not even a word, is it, guys? Sorry. <laughs> you're not worthy of it. Then that defines that you're somehow separate. Um because the system, I suppose, is hasn't always looked at um, everybody equally. You know, if we go back, education was introduced in Scotland in 1872. There was an Education Act. And I'm thinking of a world that resembles a Charles Dickens novel or a Thomas Hardy novel. You know, it's Oliver Twist, you know, and education was very much seen as a privilege, not a right. And that's hopefully the opposite of where we are today. And only those who were seen as capable went on into education it was seen as almost for the gifted but the people who weren't that weren't seen as having additional support needs you know if you weren't able to go into education possibly that was because you were needed at home or you weren't bright enough um, and all of these kind of innuendos we did see progress I suppose but it takes a really long time for anything to change and education just kind of stayed in a stalemate and arguably some people say we haven't moved on a lot. Um, 1944 was the next kind of big education act which kind of I suppose if you look at it with hindsight it kind of segregates education further and it acknowledges that not all children learn in the same way with the creation of categories. So the 1944 Act segregates children according to their ability and it brings in a label of um, special schools and handicapped children. So although we may not look at this as a positive now, it's a learning journey in them recognising that there was education that needed to be provided and support that needed to be provided, but it wasn't going to be the same for everybody. I'm going to, it's kind of like a bit of a history lesson now, sorry, but I just think it's really important that we see where we've come from. Um, 1978, I'd say, was the big next, was the next kind of big change and there was the Warnock Report and that actually establishes the term special educational needs. Now, it's really radical in that it kind of acknowledges that there are people who have different needs, but they also have a right to education. So, 
that kind of embeds this concept of adaptability and how we need to change and how we need to look more holistically at what a child needs in order to be able to learn. So what it does do is establish that every child is able to learn and that's a positive. However, you can look at this term that it still very much segregates and hides away, I suppose. Some people still felt like it was a very, if you had a child with any level of need, that that child was still very hidden. That act's further embedded in 1981 and, you know, we're moving into more of a world, I suppose, that like a world that I recognise that I grew up in. And there was the Epson report in 1994, um, and that presents a kind of very much more of a holistic view of what barriers there are in education um, and what barriers there also are in social context. Now, I think that's really important because what this report do, did was recognise that additional support needs didn't stop at school. So, you know, this idea that clubs and extracurricular activities and all different things, you know, children have all these rights and we need to be looking at getting it right and getting it better. So it was positive steps, in my opinion, even if it isn't everything getting it right all the time. As we come into the end of the 20th century, we have Children's Acts in 1994, the 1995 Disability and Discrimination Act, and these are monumental in giving parents and carers a huge amount more of legal rights to fight for equal opportunities for their children, to be able to mediate between education and different services, and to be able to kind of appeal to make sure that their needs were being met better. And it's the start of, I suppose, a lot of people will acknowledge that bringing up a child with additional support needs, you sometimes feel like you're fighting. Um, and these acts really enable parents to be able to go up there and fight even if that's not right it's what happened um by the time we get to the turn of the 20th century um we are starting to see um individualized education programs coming in ieps um, and we're starting to see you know this being slightly more planned way of trying to negotiate education more fairly so that children's needs are met appropriately so they can be educated um, and in 2004, the Support for Learning Act, you know, it says it's here, it's really clear and it's on paper that all children have the right, um, you know, for to be able to participate in every educational activity irrelevant of their needs. Okay, and so it's really, really important. And this is, it's in from this 2004 Act that we, we get the term additional support needs. And I suppose it was kind of like trying to, rephrase things to make things appear more positive to get people to recognize that there is a wide range of what additional support needs are and trying to take a step away from this concept of segregation and looking towards more of inclusion but in a way that is enabling appropriate education and appropriate support and that's where we kind of grow to um, this is amended in 2009, Additional Support Needs for Learning Act, and from here that's where we see the rise of the coordinated support plans um, and hopeful multi-agency working, and that's the foundations upon which you know we're working right now. And that's the foundations, I suppose, that Curriculum for Excellence has been born within in Scotland specifically in this concept that they were trying to provide a curriculum that enabled it to be flexible and suitable for people's needs. Where I think really importantly where we've got to in the last 10 years or so, we've got the 2010 Equality um, Act, which is um, preventing discrimination. 
you know, and that act is there to, as a parent, as a carer, as a professional, you can stand up and say, if my child is not being given the opportunity, if my child is being excluded, if my child is being discriminated against, that is against the law. My child has the right to their education, to the right that everything goes with it. And also, it's not just within school. Yeah, we have the right to participate in activities for to you know give them the life that they should have. So we've developed and uh, it's really hard to pull it apart from education because it's also closely linked. Um, the 2016 Education Scotland Act um, further kind of builds up the Additional Support Need Act from 29 from 2009. It's another amendment, and you know it's really about trying to build a stronger foundation and highlight the importance of meeting everybody's needs and you know making sure that people realize it's their responsibility to meet young people's needs from here you know pushing things like shinari so ensuring our children are safe healthy achieving nurtured active or whatever missed <laughs> respectful included um it, it is about putting the child at the centre of whatever is happening, that looking at it first. And we're 2021, here we are, and what has just passed this year? The United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child is now part of Scottish law. And we're one of the first countries to do that, and that's fantastic. So we need to be able to acknowledge that and celebrate it, and also build upon it and use it. You know, we need to use this in making sure that... It, all places recognise that all young people that have any form of additional support need have their rights to be met, just like any child that exists in this country. That's a lot of history and <laughs> laws, sorry, but I just think it's um, really important that we can see how we've grown, how we've changed, how institutions have been encouraged and, you know, hopefully to try and bring these recognize how important these laws and these changes are and how they need to adapt to it and they need to grow and change themselves i think it's good that we you know you can parallel it to the shift and changes in society so for instance um the paralympic games you know this can be celebrated as an event of sporting achievements of incredible sporting achievements as opposed to an add-on to the olympic games you know and this is what our children are not add-ons to the children of the rest of the world a young person with an additional support need is a young person and their rights and their are just as important it's irrelevant what their needs are so here we are <laughs> i think i've maybe have i have i gone off tangent i'm not sure um standing on my soapbox i suppose but i think it's really important and i've no doubt that these legal changes have occurred because of the work of so many parents and carers and professionals who recognised and have needed um, a better situation for their child or young person. So if I go back to thinking about a child and thinking what is an additional support need, um, I think it's really important for me that we try to not think about labels of diagnosis. Um, and it's easier, I think, to acknowledge a child with a label sadly sometimes we need that label to be able to get certain support in place or to get certain funding in place um but it's easier for people to recognize and, and realize that someone has an additional support need if they have a diagnosis um but we live in a world that is meant to be needs-based society so i would like to think more about 
the child who you don't necessarily class as having additional support need. But that child, imagine them if a grandparent died. You know, that child is going to need some extra support. Maybe it is just in the short term, but their emotional state is going to be vulnerable and they are going to need some additional support. So, you know, we need to expand what we really perceive as an additional support need. And bereavement is classed as an additional support need, you know, on paper. But I just don't think sometimes we really acknowledge that. You know, does that bereavement, bereavement, do we account that to when they lose a pet? Okay, it's a huge part of a young person's life. And so we really need to be more open about these kind of situations. Um, in a world where we really are more accepting, I think, of people irrelevant of their gender, their race, their religion and their age, we really need to acknowledge and accept that there are just so many diverse and uh, random, I suppose, unusual, unique situations that enable a child to have an additional support needs, whether it be in the short or the long term. You know, it may seem obvious that a child has their tonsils out, that there is some extra work put on them. But actually, for some children, that may be really, really traumatic and there may be some longer term consequences. I would like us to really think about what a person, a child needs, irrelevant um, of what, what the condition may be, what the situation is. You know, I like to see a person as an individual. They have a name, they have likes, they have dislikes. They have a personality, irrelevant of um, a medical diagnosis, irrelevant of a psychological diagnosis. Um, additional support needs can totally influence this and impact upon this, um, but it, it doesn't define a person and who they are. You know, if, if I talk about a little bit about my experience personally, um, you know, professionally, I, I trained as a teacher and I've taught for the last 16 years. I just stopped teaching in the last year. Um, and just, I always based my children that I worked with, I was a secondary teacher, upon getting to know the young person. You know, I wouldn't start teaching a child until I kind of felt like I knew them a little bit which may seem quite peculiar because you're always teaching, but I needed to build that relationship. So, you know, most young people that I've taught will always tell the silly games or the funny things they remember from classes that we taught. But essentially that was me trying to figure out a little bit about them, their likes, their dislikes, them, the things that made them tick. You know, is it biking? Is it anime? Is it, you know, sport? What is it that that person really likes? And then I can adapt my teaching to suit them, to suit their needs. And yes, I would look at the paperwork and look at their files and look at their academic the academic or any medical information and, and see what really are their needs. But I can't build that support until I know that child, irrelevant of what it's telling me on paper. Okay, but that's just me. <laughs> and no child is the same, you know? So that's why I've always felt it's really important to really engage. You know, young people need to be engaged, irrelevant whether or not I'm working with them in a classroom of 30 or if it's one-to-one. -one. Um, you know, every child's school record starts with their name, you know? And I think that's the start of their journey of a person who's working with them. Maybe if I talk a little bit more about my personal experiences of additional support needs as opposed to my professional experience, it may help people understand where my perspectives come from. So I was, I am dyslexic. I was diagnosed with dyslexia in my second year, in my second year of my undergraduate degree. 
Um, I mean, I was always told, you know, oh, you just make loads of small errors, spelling and grammar. Can you just improve that? Um, and I suppose it, it kind of at school, it was always seen as the thing that people were told, oh, it would have been a little bit better. It would have just jumped up a grade if you'd done that. But it, I didn't really feel it massively held me back. I just kind of got on with it. But I very clearly remember get, taking an essay back from a tutor at university. I'm not sure if it was the end of first year or beginning of second year. Um, and I was told I really needed to put in more effort because, you know, there was too many silly mistakes and my grammar and my spelling, it was all just really awful. And I probably wouldn't be able to graduate if that was the standard my writing was at. I, it really upset me. Um, and I remember thinking... Well, I, it, the insinuation was that I was stupid and I was lazy. That was what it felt like. And I was thinking to myself, I know I'm probably not like the best or the perfect student. You know, I wasn't in the library 24 hours a day, but I was working a lot um, to cover university costs, like accommodation. And, you know, and I also wanted, it was the first time I'd lived away from home and I was enjoying meeting new people and seeing the city um, and you know but I was putting in the effort I was doing my work and and I had tried so I did I went to what now with hindsight looking back was probably a learning support department and um, was told that I was dyslexic um, but I mean after I got that diagnosis I mean I never went back um, I just learned to recognize that maybe it was okay that I didn't always recognize every mistake and so I just worked harder at proofreading over and over again and asking friends that's what I did I would ask friends to check my spelling to read over things and the introduction of technology made things easier you know I, I was told to to use a computer to be able to do spell checks and things like that and yes it really really helped me um but it never really defined me you know I am um, I just kind of got on with that and you know I finished my degree I got into the honours and you know, I've done some postgraduate courses and I finished my master's and yeah, I still get told there are some silly errors, <laughs> but hey ho, I'm not perfect and I've never tried to be perfect. Um, I'm content and I'm happy with where I push myself and um, I'm, you know, I feel like I've got my own coping strategies um, and that's just the way it is. And so I don't feel this need is what it is. It's just who part of one little thing about me. Um, I've got two children and a husband and consequently they all have what I would say on paper are additional support needs. My husband's dyslexic. Um, both of my kids are adopted and their personal circumstances are what um, gives them their additional support needs. And because, you know, it's it's not something that's visually... Um, you wouldn't walk past my children and say, oh, they have additional support needs, okay? But it's, you know, maybe if people looked into attachment and developmental trauma, maybe they would understand there are different varieties of additional support needs and many of theirs are due to circumstance. Um, most of my children's needs tend to be social, emotional and behavioural. And we have had health and medical um, challenges over the times, but the things that have labels and the things which are usually defined tend to be easier to address and to gain support for. So I feel that my kids, like so many other children in the outside world, you know, have needs that maybe aren't necessarily visible to other people um, and that's okay and there's things like the sun the sunflower lanyard campaign that's really helped to promote the concept of hidden disabilities and um, i think the fact that you know the wearing of masks 
became significant, raised awareness to many people about invisible disabilities. And it's great that there are things like this which have been introduced that have been really valuable and helpful for some people. I also recognise that a lot of people maybe don't buy into these types of campaigns and maybe don't want to be. And that's okay as well because everybody's the way they are. You know, I, I think it's really important that we recognise that an additional support need is looking at the big picture for a child, looking at them at an individual and thinking, is that child getting their needs met? And if they're not, why? And do we need to do extra things? Do we need to support them in different ways? And that, I suppose, is what the additional bit is. You know, um, children aren't tick boxes. We can't say, yes, they can do this and yes, they can do this. And children are incredibly resilient and masking can be a huge problem that children can make it appear like they're coping very, very easily. But if we're able to look at a child and get to know them and recognize what their needs are, you know, and see that small changes can make a big difference. You know, it may be the provision of safe spaces, sensory zones, visual timetables, reminders, worry dolls, whatever it is, therapeutic stories, there may be small things that can help many children um, cope a lot better. You know, all children have needs, all people have needs, and you know, some of us can conform a lot more easily and suppose we adapt our needs to suit the situation, and that's a life skill, and for people who aren't able to do that, especially for children that's where we as adults and parent and carers and professionals we need to make those changes for that child we need to meet their needs so if i think about what was the name of this podcast <laughs> in that i've rambled sorry if i have but you know an additional support need for a child is when we need to stand up and recognize that we need some additional help some additional ideas, some extra attention, some extra care, when that child at some point just needs a little bit more. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's a fantastic, you know, concept that we can make a child content, happier, healthier, safer by putting in that extra work. So why wouldn't you do it? And hopefully people are. All children are amazing. <laughs> so let's keep fighting for them thanks for listening today and remember you can find us at www.thrivingfamilies.org.uk and you can also follow us and find out any updates on facebook twitter and instagram